Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Today on Into the Archives with the Boone Podcast, I go back to this particular guest brings a lot of childhood memories. You know, uh, my father played for the Angels from, I believe it was 82 to about 87, and he was a big part of those Angels teams. I'm talking about Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. This was a, a really cool interview, an in-depth interview, listening to to Reggie talk about the game from his generation to present. He's with the Houston Astros now. I hope you enjoy it. Here's part one of, of Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. Reggie, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's a pleasure, Brett. I haven't seen you in a while, but uh, used to enjoy all those times when I saw you from uh, <clears throat> hanging around the clubhouse, you and your brother Aaron and Matt, and then seeing you guys grow up into the big leagues uh, and become, you know, really good players, uh, driving in 100 rounds. I think you drove in 140 one time. Wow. Did you? you do, you've done your homework. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you guys, man, I remember that. And I was, I don't even, uh, uh, I don't, I don't take any credit for it at all, but I sure do remember you bouncing around the clubhouse and hanging with your dad and, uh, you know, watching me do whatever I was going to do. And you guys were out there fielding grounders and catching fly balls. And so, the heck of an experience when you go through life like that and then you see the guy, uh, the young kids, uh, the babies grow into men. And uh, now all of a sudden from you being seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you're 50. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience. It really is. It, it is awesome. And, and you touch on our childhood and, you know, Aaron and myself and Matthew, uh, we, we, we had such a special childhood. I don't, I don't think we knew at the time how cool it was because it was just the norm for us. But yeah, you touch on some, some really good points, special times. Uh, I remember like it was yesterday, you know, me and you playing catch in right field as a, as a, I, I forget, I was a freshman or sophomore in, in high school and, uh, dad had just got traded to the angels. You just came to the angels from the Yankees. And I decided to work in the, in the visiting clubhouse and, and, uh, guy named Dave, he was the, he was the guy then he, you know, he's going to pay me a little bit under the table. I figure this, I could make some money this summer and, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty awesome times and, and fun. And I, yeah, I appreciate that. All right. I want to, I want to start right here and I don't know how much this is really talked about. But I want to go to Arizona State, Frank Cush, Bobby Winkles, who's who's the Arizona State uh, head coach, baseball coach. You're a football player. But there was a conversation that went on. You went over to the baseball coach and took BP. Something, the story goes, I want to hear it from Reggie. How did that transition happen when you became Reggie the football baseball player to Reggie the baseball player? Well, I wanted to uh... – uh, play baseball there at Arizona State. I had heard they had a good team. Um, and then, of course, I had the, the football scholarship as a running back and um, uh, safety, <clears throat> a cornerback, a safety. 
and um, played both ways on the football team. And that was my scholarship. And I'd asked Frank Cush, could I go out for the baseball team? And he said, yes, if you have a 3.0 average. And so I got like a 3.2 the first uh, semester there. And, um, I, you know, we were just freshmen. And at that time, you couldn't play varsity sports as a freshman. So I was on the freshman teams. And um, I stayed, was staying in a dormitory called Saguaro, which is where the freshman athletes stayed. And I talked to the players over there, baseball and football, basketball. And I found out that, you know, the baseball players stayed there too, but they had never had a black player on the team. Uh, And at the term back then, it was colored. They never had had a colored player. And then on top of that, the, the, the baseball coach, the manager was from Arkansas. And I went, oh, man, that's probably going to be tough because he's from the South and everything. And they've never had any, you know, black players on the team, blah, blah, blah. And so I went over there and talked to and, uh, you know, met him. And he had known about me uh, from the scouts in high school and the scouts around the country that I was a good player. I had some skills. And um, he said, well, you know, why don't you come over one day after – football practice because we were having spring football practice and he said um you can take some you can take some batting practice or well i'm sorry it was fall you know it was football season it was fall and they had what they called fall ball for baseball and so i went over there and uh i took my shoulder pads off and that t-shirt a t-shirt and i was in football pants and football spikes and they let me take some batting practice, and I, you know, started hitting them. I hit a couple some grounders and popped up, and, uh, you know, after about ten or fifteen swings, and then I hit a little groove, and I was hitting some line drives. And the fence to right field was only about three twenty down the line, and in the alley it was about three forty, and then you know you, I could clear that on the rise, and so I hit about seven or eight ten balls over the fence, four or five in a row. And uh, he said, okay, okay, that's enough. And uh, it was known that I was, you know, had some speed and uh, didn't know, you know, that I was an outfielder. And I'd also pitched in college. Um, And at the time, on the freshman team, the sophomore team had Rick Mundy along with Sal Bando at third base. And so there was some, you know, they had a pretty good baseball team. They were number one ranked in the nation as college, uh, them in Arizona and SC and a couple teams. And so I wound up getting a tryout with the, with the freshman team. And I made that team played center field and batted cleanup and playing with Winkles. Boy, you really had a, a hell of a physical training program. And since I was a fast guy, we did a lot of running. And if I wasn't first, if I didn't finish first in the running and in the drills, he would make us stay out because he said, well, Jackson's not hustling. And since he's not running hard and he's keeping up, everybody has to stay until he keeps, until he starts winning these races. And there was another guy on the team, a white guy named Jackson Lind, L-I-N-D. And he could run almost as fast as I could. And he never got tired. 
and he used to run and stay on my heels and man, my tongue would be hanging out, but I had to win the races. It was kind of funny. Um, you know, in, in order for us to get through that particular, those particular drills, but, uh, it was great times, and every time you talk about it, it's always fun. And the guys you played with, uh, you know, are, are very, very memorable. And so it was a wonderful time for me. The difficult time for my college baseball career came when we had a road trip in my sophomore year. And they had to call a team meeting to find out who was going to room with the colored guy. And um, I had to wait outside while they had a meeting. And really, before the meeting started, uh, they weren't inside for more than two or three minutes. And the captain of the team was a guy named Jan Kleinman. I'll never forget him because he married a girl. His his girlfriend was named Jan, and he married her. And so his name was Jan Kleinman, and so was hers. So was, you know, pretty pretty cool, unique, unique thing. But he was the captain of the team. And he said, we're not going to take a vote on who's going to room with Reggie. I'm going to room with him. And they walked outside about two minutes later and it was all done. So that, that was, you know, something I never forgot, but uh, it did go on at that time. It was 1966, 66 or 67. Yeah. And you mentioned that, I mean, you know, if if you're not of a certain age right now, you didn't you didn't realize that that was real stuff that happened in our society. I think it almost uh, from from what I read, it shaped your decision when choosing a college to go to the to Arizona State. A- am I right in assuming that? Um, well, if if you're assuming that um, with the racial issues, no. But if you're assuming that that they had a good baseball team and where did I accept my scholarship for football? Yes. That was the main reason I went to Arizona state because I had a chance to play baseball there because of the quality of the baseball team. So Reggie Jackson grows up in Pennsylvania. I want to hear about Reggie Jackson as a kid. I know your dad was a baseball player. Yeah. 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 My dad was a, was a ta- was a tailor. <laughs> um, he made clothing and he fixed clothing, and he also had a dry cleaners and had his own shop. And at that time, um, having a dry cleaners and being a tailor, it was like having a paper route. I had a paper route, and I had anywhere from fifty-seven to sixty-five customers all the time. And my dad had a same thing with he had a tailoring dry cleaning route and we went to 50 to 75 customers on a weekly basis to pick up their clothing dry clean it wash it laundry it whatever they needed and press it and then return it back to them and we had those same customers for years and years and took care of their clothing with a with a delivery service now you I don't even think they have that anymore, but um, he fixed people's clothing, fixed their holes in their pockets and maybe their holes in their pants or if their cuffs got too long they bought some new pants and they needed to be uh, tailored. Um, 
you know, then my dad did all that kind of work. If, if, if someone lost weight and they needed their pants taken in the waist or they had a new suit and needed to be measured, uh, you know, that's the work that my dad did. And then uh, in, uh, we had our own house there. We had the business downstairs and then we lived upstairs as a family and we were a family of six, uh, fa- six kids and uh, mom and dad. And then at six years of age, my parents split and had a divorce. And uh, my mom took three children and my dad kept three. And I don't know if they ever got divorced, but they lived together and they communicate. And didn't live together, but lived in separate places. Um, and we didn't visit much each each other um, because it was, you know, like 25 or 30 miles away. And you just, I don't know, was kind of far. Um, but that was kind of what... Uh, you know, how it went, how it worked. Um, and that's what life was like. My dad was a hard working guy. Um, he worked, you know, 10, 14 hours a day and you had to help with chores around the house. Um, and it, it was a real neighborhood. Uh, Brett, you know, you, at the grocery store, we had a, um, an account and I could go down there, get tasty, cake, tasty cakes or sodas and put it on my dad's account. As long as you had done your work and your chores, um, you know, you could go down there to the, the grocery store. Uh, they had all the, the stuff there. It's like a general store. And um, you could get some tasty cakes or some chips ahoy, uh, you know, <laughs> the root beer sodas and stuff like that. And then the next door, place there next door was uh, a delicatessen, was owned by the Swartz uh, family. And then um, on the corner, there was a mobile gas station, and Bob Kelso owned that. And our family, we had an account there. And then across the street was a drugstore called Fleischer's, and it had a soda fountain where they would make a cherry Coke and make a chocolate soda, uh, make a vanilla soda, and just make it at the counter with seltzer water and syrup. Um, And you could, they had ice cream scooper and things like that. And people have always asked me, Reggie, what did you, uh, what made you become the guy you were under pressure or a a guy that, you know, just seemed to get it done uh, when you had to? And I said, well, my dad sent me to the store one day to buy a pint of Neapolitan ice cream. You know what that is? Yeah. My kids get the Neapolitan shakes. Okay. Neapolitan for all you youngsters that are listening and the old timers know what it know what it is. It's a pint of vanilla chocolate and strawberry mixed together. And so my dad sent me to store one day with a quarter. It was twenty five cents a pint to get a pint of Neapolitan. So I went to the store and they didn't have any. I went across the street to Kelso's and I borrowed twenty five cents from him and put it on my dad's account. And then I went to the mobile gas station on the corner was owned by Bob Bradshaw. And I borrowed 25 cents from him on my dad's account. I went back across the street and bought a pint of vanilla, a pint of chocolate and a pint of strawberry. And I went back home and my dad said, well, you son, you've been gone a little while. Is everything okay? I said, well, dad, they didn't have any Neapolitan ice cream. So I bought a pint of strawberry, a pint of chocolate and a pint of vanilla. And you owe Kelso's and you owe Bradshaw's. And he said, 
good job, son. Uh, thanks for doing a good job and getting the job done when you need to. And from that little experience, I had people always say, gosh, Reggie, it seemed like you got it done when you had to or when it counted. And I've always recounted that little story. <laughs> wow. That's it's and, and the way you recollect the names, I mean, you knew the name of the owner of the establishment you were going into. Uh, and this. Yeah. Is well, it, you, you know, Brett, it was it was just like you being in the clubhouse. You, that was your neighborhood. Yep. And so, you know, whether whether it was Rick, uh, Ranger Rick, that was the trainer or uh, Yoshi, that was the, the uh, clubhouse guy uh, or uh, I forget the guy that was the Bubba that was, uh, you know, one of the guys that worked on the foul line. You yep. remember those names in your past. And so for me, I was either Uncle Reggie or, you know, Reggie, the guy that played with my dad, you know, yeah. and I, I wasn't a big star or nothing like that. I was just the guy that you came in and hung around with and uh, tried to get into the player's lounge, sneak yourself a Hershey bar or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that. I mean, that is just that's so cool. Uh, Cheltenham High. I hope I pronounced that right. That's where he, that's where you went to high school, yeah. and you yeah. played it all. You know, this is back when you played every sport. I, I think, you know, 2021, we we lose sight a little bit these kids today, and it's you know these parents want to specialize everything, and and I'm from the school of you play them all, especially as a kid, and you find out what you're passionate about, and and I think I think certain sports prepare you for the other sport football prepares you for baseball baseball the things we do on the field prepare us for the football field i'm just a believer in that i hope we get back to that but you played football hoops you're you ran track and obviously you played baseball tell me about that a little bit what, what were you best at i was best at playing football i was a much better football player uh, Brett than anything. And uh, I just played baseball because it's what you did when we were kids and when you were a kid. The season got over for basketball and you played baseball in the spring. Um, baseball got over and you played football in, in, the, in the winter. And that's just the way it was. And I even ran track part-time uh, when I was at Arizona State uh, on the off days. And then playing football when I was at Arizona State, we had five or six guys. Uh, ben Hawkins, who was a wide receiver for the Eagles, and a guy named John Pitts, who was 6'5", and a wide receiver uh, that played for the Buffalo Bills. Um, we would go in and scrimmage the bar varsity basketball team and, and, and just, you know, did everything, even in college. But uh, as you said, you know, the what's it called club baseball and all that kind of nonsense of <clears throat> taking kids to Vegas for a week and playing and spending all the money like that. If our families and your family, and my family couldn't afford to do anything like that. Not, not uh, uh, your dad, Bob's dad, if you had to play the neighborhood. Now, if, if you lived in um, Newport beach, why can't you go to Corona Del Mar and play? Or why can't you go to Laguna and play? Or Seal Beach? Why do you have to drive to San Francisco? 
or right. drive to Albuquerque to play a game. That's crazy. And it, and it eliminates a lot of kids because they can't afford it. And so that's, that's disheartening and disappointing for me as to how that club sport, if you will, you know, and the coaching gets crazy and people demanding that their kids play and everybody gets a trophy. And that's, that, it's changed so much that it, it saddens me and um, is painful and trying to specialize and all this kind of stuff about a sport. Just go play for fun. And sooner or later, you'll narrow down as to where you want to specialize. If you can go further, if you can become a pro, yeah, because there's so few that can, and these parents don't realize how tough it is playing at that top level. That most kids, ninety nine point nine nine percent of those kids out on that field right now, and that you know, in that specialized league, that like you said, we're going to go to San Francisco to play. They got no chance. And exactly. these kids, it's like, you know, we only get a we only get one childhood. And when I retired and I coached my kids a little bit, I tried to provide, yes, of course, uh, advice whenever I could give it. But the main goal was for these kids to enjoy themselves, enjoy being a 12-year-old. I don't want them to look back when they're 25 and say, man, you know, my parents really took away my childhood. They put so much pressure on me to play in these travel leagues. And, and I want them to look back and go, man, remember on that little league team and, and Joe hit that home run and sent us to the next. Le- and, and it's nothing but great memories because that's what's being that's what being a kid's all about. It gets serious, as you know, as I know what we did for a living. It gets serious soon enough for these kids. And, and you will. You'll you'll. When, once you get into your junior year in high school, you'll you'll start to separate. And you'll see the real players from the guys that aren't going to play on after that. But but man, as a kid, I just love them to go out and play every sport, try them all. Like I said, and uh, you know, you find what your passion is, and you can't exactly. do that if you're if you're forced. You know, you you played football, you finish a football season, you're probably like, I'm sick of getting the crap kicked out of me, man. I'm looking forward to go play baseball. The end of a baseball season, man, I can't wait to get back on the gridiron. You know, there's something exactly. to be said for that, too. Yeah, exactly. And you go out and run track. Um, you play basketball. I even tried wrestling a little bit. I, I, I did it all because part of it was if I wasn't playing a sport and on the first team, I had to go home and work. You know, my dad yeah. didn't go for this sitting on if you didn't make the team. Uh, it's good for your social development if you're part of the team. My dad said, you ain't, you ain't starting, then come home and work. Because you're sitting on a bench is nothing. Yeah, <laughs> play, play better. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Um, all right. So back then, when you were in high school, you end up graduating in 64. There's no draft yet. So you're being, uh, I would assume – you're being courted by professional teams, and I and I heard there were a few: the Giants, Dodgers, Twins. Uh, but you accept, you sign the uh, the scholarship with Arizona State. Right. But did you even consider uh, uh, playing professional baseball at that point, or were you was your heart set on going to college in in that route? I, I yeah, I did not consider uh, going pro at a high school. My dad wouldn't allow that. Um, you know, he went to a, uh, 
um, a vocational school and learned a trade. That's how he learned to become a tailor. My dad was uh, uh, part black, part Puerto Rican, part white, part Native American. And his dad uh, was a police officer. He was one of the first black police officers in Jersey. And he wanted to make sure that his kids got a college education. And that was the most important. And if I could get a college education through a state uh, university by going there, because it's a lot cheaper to go to a state university, or you can go to a vocational school, was the least thing you had to do. Um, but you had to go to college. And so I had an older brother that didn't want to go to college. So he wound up going in the Air Force for 20 some odd years and uh, became, you know, a, a, you know, outstanding military guy. Um, got out when he was almost 50 and then still worked at the military. And then my oldest brother went to uh, Morgan uh, uh, College, which was in uh, Baltimore, and also went to Howard University. Um, and then, you know, my sisters went to college as well. But uh, my dad insisted on us going to, to a higher level, you know, higher education uh, facility. That seems like your dad, man, he... Seemed like he did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Absolutely. We, we go through, Absolutely. We go, we go through Arizona State, 1966, the second overall pick. And at the time, you know, a year later, it turns into the Oakland Athletics. But you, you get drafted right. by the Kansas, Kansas City A's, where you're going to spend the next pretty much decade a, as an A. Mm-hmm. Uh Tell me about that day. The second overall pick, a little different than it is today, Reg, you know, with the with the draft and the TV and everybody gets instant gratification. You know, when you're picked, uh, even in my day, when I got drafted, I, I, I think I got a phone call the next day. And uh, what was it like in 1966? How, how were you told that you'd been the second overall pick? Well, I was drafted and told on the telephone I was in Baltimore and they had called me on the phone when I was drafted. And uh, about two or three weeks before that, I was in Arizona at Arizona State. And Bobby Winkles, the, co- the head coach there, who was really very, very good to me, you know, he's like a second father. Uh, he taught me, you know, how to act and how to handle myself, et cetera. He was part of my develop- development as a young man. He is, as well as the the great football coach, Frank Cush, were instrumental in me developing who I was as a young man. Um, I was always a little uncomfortable socially because of being black, being colored. You know, you were a second-class citizen. And so I was very uncomfortable with that. Sometimes I wanted to say something and you couldn't. Um, you wanted to go someplace and you really couldn't. Um, even when I was raised as a kid, there were some of my friends I couldn't play with because their parents didn't want them playing with a colored kid. Um, and when I, you know, had friends, not even girlfriends, uh, but when I had friends, that when they were girls, you know, some of the parents didn't want um, their kids, girls or boys, hanging around with you. So it was kind of funny and, and, and strange and awkward Bobby Winkles called me in about three weeks before the draft. And he said, Reggie, I'm going to recommend you to leave college and take the money. 
I know your family situation. Uh, you guys don't have money. You're poor, and um, you're going to get six figures of money, and you should take that so you can help your family. And so he said, you're not going to be drafted number one, although you're clearly the best athlete in the draft. They're going to draft a kid ahead of you by the name of Steve Chilcott, who's a catcher out of California. And the, the Mets have the number one pick. And so I didn't really understand it too much, but I knew what he was saying. He said, you're dating out of your race by dating. A, and I was dating a woman by the name of Juanita Campos, who was Mexican. And I never could understand it. I said, because, well, my middle name's Martinez. What, well, why am I dating out of my race? And he said, well, the Mets think you'll be a troublemaker and cause social disrest in the city of New York. And that the, the, the general manager of the team was a guy named Bob Sheffing, who was, uh, I never forget his name, but I was denied being the number one pick. Not that it was that important at all, but I walked out of his office just dumbfounded that I was not going to be the number one pick in the nation, clearly being recognized as the best talent by far from Danny Murtaugh, who had made a comment. He said, the draft class this year is really good. The best player in the draft by far a kid by the name of Reggie Jackson that goes to Arizona State that's built like a blacksmith. And I'll never forget the comment uh, was in the paper. And then I was drafted number two. Number two. Um, and then my, my dad and I were happy about it. Uh, I didn't have an agent. Um, we flew to Charlie Finley's uh, home in, in uh, Camp and. Uh, Laporte, Indiana. He owned a business in Chicago. So he flew us out there, and then he lived about uh, 50 miles away. He commuted back and forth in a little private uh, airport, airplane. And so he put us on that plane, and we went to his house and spent the night, ate breakfast and, and lunch and hung around all day and wind up signing my contract for $104,000. And... uh I got a new Pontiac and uh, <laughs> yeah, I got a brand new Pontiac and I got a, uh, uh, four years of college at $2,000 a semester so I could finish my school and I uh, went off to uh, Lewiston, Idaho to play rookie, ba rookie league baseball. Wow. Yep. That's, and, and, uh, I mean, you go, you come out of the draft. You know, you should have been the number one pick. Uh, but you, but you said you and your dad, you were happy about it. You know, I guess if if you roll it back and you were the number one pick, like you should have been, it's different. Now you're a Met, and, and you miss that That's opportunity. Right. And as I was looking back at your career, everybody knows Reggie as the Yankee. And the three home run games and Mister October. But man, early in your career, those A's teams. There were some good freaking teams. And I mean we, it was a dynasty. Uh, it was a dynasty. We were Yeah, we were really we were really good players. 
and and really good guys to stick together. Um, playing with Bando and Joe Rudy, uh, playing with Dave Duncan and Raleigh Fingers, we were all in the minor leagues together and headed to the big leagues. And another guy that was there with us was Tony Larusa. He he was a big bonus baby. He wasn't that good of a player, but he got a big bonus. And um, but he was smart, you know. And he wind up playing in the big leagues uh, part time. And of course, Tony became a manager, and then the great Hall of Fame manager that he is today. But uh, all those guys that I remember, uh, Johnny Blue Moon Odom and Vita Blue, Riley Singers, Kenny Holtzman was on that team. We had got him into trade, but we really had some great players. Bert Campanaris was there, and uh, Bando played third. And then we had the first baseman. We had a few first basemen. We had Mike Epstein. We had a guy named Don Mincher. All outstanding big league players. Uh, and then the catching, of course, was between Gene Tennis, Dave Duncan. <laughs> Excuse me. And then we had an all-star come over with us by the name of Ray Fossey, who had, uh, you know, was a great, great, great receiver, good hitter, hard-nosed, tough guy. And then the outfield you know, was myself and Joe Rudy. And then we picked up from when Rick Mundy, uh, after that, uh, Mundy got traded to the Cubs. We got Holtzman and Billy North. And as you said, we became a dynasty, won four or five, uh, four or five, uh, divisions in a row and three world series championships in a row. Yeah, that, that was awesome. I mean, you debut at 67, 68, you hit 29 homers. 69, you hit 47. Right. But those, man, 71 through 75, you're an all-star every year. And and the most impressive thing to me is you just mentioned it. It's 72 to 74. You win three straight World Series. You're the MVP in 73. Not only the MVP of the league, you're the MVP of the World Series as well. Uh, I don't know, but those days are fascinating to me because, you know, in a time, especially when I played, you know, I played for the Mariners and, and, and the Reds were my main teams. And it's like, I, you know, I remember those teams and you had to wear a certain color spike. Uh, you couldn't go outside. Major League Baseball would not allow you to wear, you know, wear like a, a loud wristband or it, you kind of had to be in uniform. But the yeah, A's yeah. kind of mixed that up back then. I mean, you came in, you had the you had the mustache, you had the white shoes. It's almost like you guys had swagger before there was swagger. That's true. That came from our owner. You know, we wore white shoes. Um, we wore green socks. We had gold stirrups. We had gold sanitary socks, rather, and green stirrups. And, uh, and we had white pants. And sometimes we wore white pants all the time and we would change our shirts from green, white, and gold. We'd wear white on Sunday, but the green and the gold, we alternated those from time to time. And sometimes shit, I'd walk outside with the wrong shirt on and, and, the, and you look around and people look at you, look at you, but you wouldn't even know. Because you, you, I got on a green shirt. I don't. I'm not paying attention now. Looking, everybody got gold. I'm thinking I got gold on. But you, somebody look at you, and you know, you get a ten dollar fine because you put the wrong shirt on or something. You know. But it, uh, it, it was nothing. It was a lot of fun. 
you know, our, our owner was a very much like George Steinbrenner, you know, very demanding um, and expected excellence from us. He was a hardworking guy, so you respected the hell out of him, just like people do Steinbrenner now. Uh, the difference between him and Steinbrenner is Finley didn't have the money Steinbrenner had. You know, Steinbrenner would spend the money to put a winner on the field. That was his passion, just to just to build a winner. Yeah, and and uh, we had Dave Parker on the program a couple of weeks ago, and and he spoke to the you know that those Pittsburgh Pirates, those you know we are family teams of the seventies. They had they had some swagger. They had they you know they had the uniforms that were that were loud, but it, it really it, it started with you guys in the A's. I think the A's were kind of the pioneers of that of that kind of uh, I don't know. It, it was a different team, but. You know, the Pirates took oh, that on and, and did their thing. But I think the A's started it. For sure, we we were, the, we were the start of all of that. The Pirates, you know, were later on in the 70s. Uh, in 79 is when they had their great run uh, with Dave Parker and Dave Cash and Al Oliver, Manny Sanguien, and the great players that even – and Clemente was still around um, with those great, great teams that they had there. Uh, they were the first team really to start nine black players on the field. Um, so all those things that, that you remember and all the specialness of, you know, Danny Murtal being the manager, manager. And then there was uh, Chuck. I can't think of his last name. Uh, was a oh, I know. Uh, the, the manager. Uh... Chuck. His first name was Chuck. Yeah, it was. Also Had a mustache. He also managed. He also managed the White Sox. Yep, I, I don't, I can't he think also, of him either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't think of his name right now. But uh, anyway, um, you know, those the teams, the team that we had was really noted for the swagger and the white shoes and the gold uniforms, you know, the handlebar handlebar mustache of Raleigh Fingers, and I was the first guy to wear a mustache in the spring of 1972. And then guys started saying, well, Reggie's trying to be different, uh, blah, blah, blah. And what happened is I had got to camp and I didn't shave for about five or six days. And then I went in and shaved and kind of half shaved and left the scruff around. And it grew to the point to where somebody said, what do you do? What are you trying to grow a mustache? And I said, nah, not really. And so then I said, hey, looks pretty good. Why don't I grow a mustache? And then a couple guys like Daryl Knowles and Bando and a few guys um, grew mustaches. Fingers was one of them and figured, well, Reggie's trying to be different. If we all grow mustaches, he'll shave it off. And what happened is was four or five guys started growing mustaches. And Charlie Finley said, if everybody grows a mustache, I'll give everyone $200 on the team and we'll have a mustache day. And that's how the mustache stuff came back. <laughs> that's yeah, that's pretty. And, and finger, he hasn't given it up to date. You know, I, I was in a, right. I played the golf tournament with him. He's still rocking it. And, and he's still, he's still curly the ends. He's got that handlebar. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Raleigh's a great guy. All those guys, uh, Raleigh and, and Joe Rudy Bando still talk to him. Uh, Vita Blue came to my 75th birthday party there uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so you still, 
have those same relationships. They're very special. And um, and I played my last year with the A's with Dave Stewart. And uh, I met Dave Stewart when he was 10 years years old. Used to hang around the ballpark in Oakland. He was from Oakland over on 66th Avenue. And I would ride by there, and he'd wave at me. Finally, I started stopping. And, um, uh, you know, he'd come out to the ballpark. He'd ride his bike out there. He'd meet me out there. Dave Stewart, the great pitcher, won 20 games four times, World Series MVP. Um, yeah. And then it got to the point where he would wait for me after the game, and uh, we would stick his bike, take the front tire off, stick the bicycle in the back seat, and drive. And I'd drive him home and drop him off. Wow, that's pretty yeah. cool. And then he wound he wound up in the big leagues. Yep. For a lot of years, yeah, on those World Series teams. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah. the what, what <laughs> not, probably not that many people realize that you, that team in particular was really, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's groundbreaking, but you came to the year, it was uh, after the 75 seed, you had nine guys that wouldn't sign a contract. It really kind of changed, it was the beginning of changing arbitration and how free agency is now and, and the, the perks that the, the players of today and the players of my day, we received uh, kind of the benefits we received started with not, I mean, if you want to go back to it, started with my grandfather, <laughs> then it, then it went to your guys' generation. Uh, but, but tell me about when you, nine guys on that A's team after this, I believe it was a 75 season, Refuse to sign their contracts. It ends up, you end up going to Baltimore for a year because of it. And then eventually on to the Yankees. But tell me about how, how that team, they didn't sign their contracts and they held out. Well, what happened there, uh, Booney, is that um, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a historical time in baseball. Marvin Miller um, was the guy that drove this, and it was called the reserve clause. The reserve clause in the baseball contract in the 40s, 50s, 60s, up to the 60s, always had, up to the 70s, had an automatic renewal clause, a in perpetuity contract, which then went in front of uh, the Senate or to the judicial system and got denied that you are not allowed to sign the contract for one year and have it be in perpetuity that you were bound to that team. That was disallowed. And that was tested by three guys, Dave McNally, Andy Messersmith and Kurt flood. Yeah. Now Dave McNally was retired, was retiring. Andy Messersmith was still a player. Kurt Flood was traded. And because he was black, and this is a strong statement, was ostracized from the game. Got involved with alcohol, went wayward, and just within a matter of five, six years, died. Got, Got ostracized from the game. Became a broadcaster, got involved with alcohol, it devastated him. 
but he was part of the reserve clause that was broken by uh, Marvin Miller and then the testing of that reserve clause that made a player bound to a team in perpetuity. That became an illegal clause. In 1975, Charlie Finley was late in sending a contract to Catfish Hunter by December the 15th. He missed the date for an automatic renewal. And Catfish Hunter became the first free agent. He signed a five-year contract for the, with the Yankees for $3.75 million. That's been lost and unknown. Then the guys tested the reserve clause with Marvin Miller and a guy named uh, Richard Moss leading the way. At that time, Donald Fear was an underling working in the office. They won that case. Then it got to the point to where every player was a free agent. Every player was a free agent. Baseball and the players union and the owners got together and gave baseball a six-year pass. You can't become a free agent until you play six years in the league. But at one time, and the guy that wanted it that way was Charlie Finley. He said, let them all be free. And if they're all free, the money won't be as great, won't be as much of a demand. But if you let a few players be free agents, you're going to have 30 teams chasing one guy. And the numbers will be too big. He was right. They should have let all players become free agents every year. And you wouldn't have had all this running away uh, from teams because Dr. J., Oscar Robertson, Michael Jordan would all be free at one time. And you can't pay them all. I mean, you'd yeah. be the same way that Reggie and Johnny Bench and Seaver and Munson and everybody be a free agent at one time. But, no, they wanted the six-year plan. And so what happened is you were then able, after being in the game for six years, which all of the A's were, and many teams had players that had six years of service. I'd come into the league in 67, and so this happened in 76. So Bando, Rudy, Fingers, Bida, Holtzman, we all were free agents in the same way with many other teams. So Finley started trading us. And he traded some players just for the money. He sold Vida to the Yankees for a million five. He sold Joe Rudy and Bert Campanaris to the Red Sox for like $3 million. Fingers was sold to San Diego. And it's, it's amazing how this story is so relevant to me that the people producing your show got open eyes. They don't know what happened. They don't know who Andy Messersmith is. They don't know that Dave McNally was involved in, in, in ridding the contract of the reserve clause. The reserve clause 
was a clause that, as I stated before, made that player belong to that franchise in perpetuity. And that is what got baseball in trouble. It was, and it just came to my mind, it was a breach of the antitrust law. And that's what got baseball in trouble and got them in a situation of free agency. But it was supposed to be all at one time. But they quickly got together and banded together and got themselves to the point to where, no, you got to wait six years to become a free agent. That's that deal. And it wasn't that we, yeah, and all of the A's, we wouldn't sign our contracts. So he sold us. And Bowie Kuhn denied the sale. He unwound the deals. All the players were returned back to the A's. And then we all played our options out. But after he sold the players, uh, he said those sales were denied. As I said, the players that were sold to the, the, the Yankees and the Red Sox were reversed because they had a clause in the baseball contract for ownership that it was against the best interest of the game. And that's how that deal, those deals of sales of Finley selling his players was unwound. That would never happen today because of lawsuits that would have happened. He couldn't deny the right of the owner to sell players, but he did it in the best interest of the game, and that clause overruled legality, the legal system. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting. He said Finley had the idea of let them all be free agents. And at the time, right. probably everybody said, yeah, let me be a free agent. You know, the great players are going to get, you know, the 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 most money. But right. you look, you, you fast forward to today and, you know, some free agents, oh, he didn't get what he should have got. Well, what was his free agent class? You know, it's all about the free agent class. And if you've got a weak free agent class, you're probably going to get players out there, the only ones available. They're going to probably make more money than they more normally would have made because there's not other That's people. Right. And That's and right. it's the luck of the draw. It's supply and demand. Uh, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it, but that's the way it is. It all, depends. it all depends, Brett, on who you are and what your skill set is. Right. You, you, you know, when, when, when you were rolling in your heyday, hitting 35, 40 home runs a year and driving in 120, 130, 140, the sky would have been the limit because you could help anybody, a, a guy running those kind of numbers at you. Those are boxcar numbers. And so you're going to get boxcar money. Yep. And that's that's the way it was, you know. But, <clears throat> you know, when you turn around and, and pay a guy uh, like – uh, Garrett Cole, three hundred and thirty million upsets the apple cart. Too much dough. I'm happy for him. I wish I was him. <laughs> Me and you both. <laughs> I wish I was him, but at the same time, you, you, you can't pay that kind of jack out. It's too. It's too much for a team. Um, and and these teams here, they're worth. Billions of dollars, billion five, 
three billion for the for the Dodgers, four or five billion for the Dodgers, four or five billion for the Yankees. But they don't drive the revenues to quantify that. They would not be selling for it. If you sold the Yankees and they make five hundred million dollars, that would be a price earnings ratio of ten times if it sold for for five billion. And that's barely what the Yankees are worth and probably about what they make a year. And it's either the Yankees um, or the Dodgers or the Red Sox that have the highest earnings. And none of them touch a billion dollars. Now, if you're talking about price to earnings and you're talking about different companies, if you take a look at your stock market and see that some companies are selling for 30, 40, 50 times EBITDA. 50 times earnings, and you have market caps 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 billion, and you have five, six companies now on the stock exchange that sell for 100 times earnings, 200 times earnings. Um, teams, uh, companies that are worth in the, in the trillions, bro, okay? Um, Baseball teams are really not worth as much money as you would think they were worth as a normal business. Apple sells for 29 times earnings. If the Yankees are making five or six hundred million and they're worth four or five billion, as they say, that's seven, eight times earnings. That's not a good valuation. Amazon is selling for 62 times their earnings. They're yeah. worth one trillion and 600 billion. They're selling for 62 times earnings. So it, it, it's different when people talk about all the money that the baseball teams make. It's, it, the money's not there, bro. It's not there. There aren't. 80, there are not 75% of the teams that make $100 million a year. And $100 million a year at 10 times earnings would make your team worth a billion dollars. And most of the teams are worth on the bottom a billion. And at the top, there's probably five or six Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, Cubs. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 